Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 57, the book of Acts, chapter 28, the end of our study of Acts. Well, today we bring the book of Acts to a close. It's been a long odyssey. And when we complete chapter 28, I'm going to briefly review and summarize the book. Well, when we concluded last time, Paul was in the presence of the Jewish leadership of Rome. And there were perhaps as many as 50,000 Jews living in Rome at this time. And so there would be, have been a great many leaders. And we find that the Roman Jews don't have a great connection to the Jews of the Holy Land. It might be too strong to characterize it as an us-them sort of relationship, but clearly the long distance between Jerusalem and Rome and the totally different lifestyles represented by the residents of each place created a challenging barrier between the tolerant Jews of Rome and the zealous Jews of Jerusalem. Now it's probably fair to say that the Jews of Rome held a similar desire for a peaceful coexistence with the Romans as did the Sadducees of Jerusalem. Now of course there was a price to pay to attain that, that goal of a peaceful coexistence. And the price was to compromise the Jewish religion with the Roman pagan ways and to accept and support Roman political rule and Hellenistic lifestyle. Therefore, the Jews of Rome, they were a bit concerned about Shaul, who arrived in chains. I mean, was he a troublemaker? Was he a fomenter of rebellion? They had heard about the way. They knew of Paul as, a, as an evangelist of this movement. And now, he shows up as a prisoner. They had no desire to be associated with Paul that might damage the relationship between themselves and the Romans. Paul well knew this, so he was quick to say he had done nothing against Roman law or against Jewish law. In fact, he says that the Romans had decided to release him. It was some Judean Jews who objected. That's why he appealed to Caesar and that's why he's come to Rome as a prisoner. So, pick up your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 28, and we're going to read a portion of it. We're going to read from verse 17 to the end. Page 1400, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Acts 28, starting at verse 17. After three days, Shaul called a meeting of the local Jewish leaders, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I have done nothing against either our people or the traditions of our fathers, I was made a prisoner in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me. They were ready to release me because I had done nothing to justify a death sentence. But when the Judeans objected, I was forced to appeal to the emperor. Not that I had any charge to make against my own people, 
And this is why I've asked to see you, to speak with you. For it is because of the hope of Israel that I have this chain around me. They said to him, Well, we've not received any letters about you from Judah, and none of the brothers who have come from there have reported, has reported or said anything bad about you. But we do think it would be appropriate to hear your views from you, yourself. For all we know about this sect... Uh, sect is that people everywhere speak against it. So they arranged a day with him and they came to his quarters in large numbers and from morning until evening he explained the matter to them, giving them a thorough witness about the kingdom of God and making use of, of the Torah of Moses and the prophets to persuade them about Yeshua. Now some were convinced by what he said. Others refused to believe. So they left, disagreeing among themselves, after Shaul had made one final statement. The Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, spoke well and saying to your fathers through Yeshayahu Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing but never understand. You will keep on seeing but never perceive. Because the heart of this people has grown thick. And with their ears they barely hear. With their eyes they have closed. For fear they should see with their eyes. Hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and do tshuva, to repent, so that I could heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the goyim, to the Gentiles, to the nations, and they will listen. Paul remained two whole years in a place he rented for himself, and he continued receiving all who came to see him, openly and without hindrance, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Well, naturally, we are only reading a few selected quotes and recollections chosen by Luke from this first meeting between Paul and the Roman Jewish leadership, not the entirety of the dialogue. So we need to do a little bit of reading between the lines. The Jewish leadership wanted to know why Paul was in this predicament. And Paul well knew they would be skeptical. So he initiated a preemptive strike and he called for this meeting. But rather than addressing any specific accusations or apparently even identifying who exactly made the accusations against him, Paul offers that the reason he is here and wanting to speak with these distinguished Jews is because of what? The hope of Israel, he says. That's why. What's the hope of Israel? Resurrection. That is, he came to Rome willingly, in a sense. Because he desired so much to tell the people of Rome about the gospel and how resurrection, that's the linchpin of the gospel of Yeshua. So it is really Paul's devotion to Israel's ancestral hope that has cost him his personal freedom as opposed to him having committed some crime against the Romans or the Jews. Now as was the typically Roman way, the Jewish leadership of Rome answers Paul in a polite and a diplomatic way by saying they've not received any letters 
from Judea, and further, that no Jew that had come to Rome from Judea told them anything bad about Paul personally, so they're willing to at least hear what Paul has to say. Now, what's their interest in this? It is that what little they have heard about the way, as a sect, is not good. And we need to continue to note that Jews, including the Jewish leadership of Rome, regarded the way as a sect of Judaism, as the scriptures clearly tell us. So as of the time of this meeting, which would have been around 60, maybe 61 A.D., no one knew believers in Yeshua as being part of anything other than a peculiar Jewish sect. It was not in any way seen as a separate religion, certainly not viewed as a new Gentile religion. Thus we must keep in mind that any mention of Christians that we see in our New Testaments during this era is an anachronism. That is, we're reading something that occurred later on, but is being read backward in time to before it actually existed. So we must not picture believers at this time as strictly divided into Jews and Gentiles, with Gentiles belonging to something called a church, while the Jews belong to something called a synagogue. Believers in Yeshua remained nearly entirely Jewish controlled with its headquarters in Jerusalem. While this indeed would change later, that doesn't occur within the time frame of the book of Acts. Now it's hard to know what's meant by the Roman Jews not receiving any letters from Judea about Paul or about the way. Now I presume it to mean proclamations from the Sanhedrin telling them not to associate with believers who might come to Rome and to declare the way perhaps as a heretical movement of Judaism. So essentially the leadership is saying that there's no official complaint or, or instruction against Paul or the way so they, they feel free to have a, a conversation with Paul and to hear what he has to say about it all. Now as David Stern, who's a Messianic Jew, points out in his commentary on Acts, unfortunately, modern day Jews are not so open-minded about hearing what Messianic Jews have to say about Yeshua and the Gospel of Christ. Judaism has long ago decided that Jews who accept Christ should have no audience, no association with mainstream Jews and the ultra-religious being especially adamant on this matter. Now the first meeting was essentially a preliminary meeting. It basically resulted in setting appointment for another meeting. We've all had those. It's a meeting to have a meeting. And at that second meeting, Paul would elaborate on his position. Verse 23 explains that large numbers of Jews came to hear Paul at the next meeting. All day from morning to evening they stayed and listened as Paul walked them through his theology of the gospel. Or as Luke called it, Paul instructed them on the kingdom of God. 
Now, let me interject that the terms the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven mean exactly the same thing. They're completely interchangeable terms in the Bible. And notice what Paul used to try and persuade these Roman Jews to his way of thinking. The Torah of Moses and the prophets. Let's be clear on this. This means he referenced Holy Scripture as the, the phrase the Torah and the prophets used in this way does not indicate Halakha, Jewish law. Like with any group of people, Jew or Gentile, some believed Paul, others didn't. And what always happens in such cases is that as those who came to the meeting were leaving, they were debating and, and disagreeing with one another. And clearly, the main point that Paul made to these leaders, beyond his belief that Yeshua is the Messiah, is that one can become a member of God's kingdom only by honest, sincere repentance. And it is a refusal to repent that blocks one's access to eternal life. Now we learn this because of the very scripture passage that Paul used to one last time try to persuade these naysayers with. It was from Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. That's, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it was printed in it. Let me read it to you again. Go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but never understand. You will keep on seeing, but never perceive, because the heart of this people has grown thick. With their ears they barely hear, and their eyes they've closed for fear that they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and repent so that I can heal them. Rabbi Yochanan says this about the passage of Isaiah. Great is the power of repentance. It can rescind a man's final sentence. So it's not as though Paul was unique in his theology that it is repentance that paves the way to eternal life with God. But what Paul was trying to help these leaders understand is that repentance alone won't do it. The gospel of Christ requires repentance plus a dependence on the work of Yeshua on the cross to gain eternal life. This is something that most Jews could not and to this day cannot accept. But now we hit one of those passages that has been contorted and twisted to fit an agenda. Verse 28. There it says that the salvation offered by God has been sent to the Gentile nations and that they will listen. Now, much Christian doctrine has been created with this verse as its core reference in order to claim that it means that Gentiles replaced Israel as God's chosen people. That is, God rejected the Jews and now he's accepted the Gentiles, thus replacing the old people with the new people. Nothing here says such a thing. And as I demonstrated in our last lesson, the idea 
that the Jews as a community of people rejected Christ, but Gentiles as a community of people accepted him is ludicrous. We know of scores of thousands of Jews in the book of Acts that accepted Christ and far fewer Gentiles. Gentiles outnumbered Jews at least 200 to 1 at this time. And as the chart I showed you previously reveals, in our day, no more than one-third of Gentiles have accepted Christ, meaning two-thirds have rejected Him. So the bulk of Gentiles have rejected Christ, just as the bulk of Jews have rejected Christ. Salvation's on an individual, one-by-one basis, not as a collective of people. And when we go back to the Abrahamic covenant now to find the legal basis for salvation, we learn that it was always God's intention that all the families of the earth would be blessed by what God did through Abraham's descendants. And who are they? The Hebrews. This would affect not just Jews, not just Gentiles. So the purpose of this statement in verse 28 is not to show a transfer of salvation or preference from one people to another, but rather God said long ago that he would spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that necessarily includes Gentiles. Now the book of Acts ends by telling us that Paul stayed in the place he had rented for two years. And all during that time he was given the freedom to proclaim the kingdom of God and to teach about Yeshua. Now why Paul was there for two years without his case being heard, we just don't know. God said Paul would stand before Caesar. But we never learn if he did or he did not. In fact, we really don't know if Paul ever got out of prison in Rome. Many scholars think he died in prison. In fact, there's a strong hint in 2 Timothy that was written, by the way, while he was under arrest, that Paul sensed that his death was imminent. Listen to 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 9. I'll just read it for you. You don't have to go there. I solemnly charge you before God and the Messiah Yeshua, who will judge the living and the dead when he appears and establishes his kingdom. Proclaim the word. Be on hand whether with it whether the time seems right or not. Convict, censure, and exhort with unfailing patience and with teaching. For the time is coming when people will not have patience for sound teaching. Hmm. But they'll cater to their passions. They'll gather around themselves teachers who will say whatever their ears itch to hear. Wow. Yes, they'll stop listening to truth. They will turn aside to follow myths. But you remain steady in every situation. Endure suffering. Do the work that a proclaimer of the good news should. Do everything your service to God requires. For as for me, I'm already being poured out on the altar. Yes, the time for my departure has arrived. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. All that awaits for me now is the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have longed for him to appear. So please do your best to come to me soon. Now that certainly sounds like a statement of someone who was convinced they had very little time left on this earth. So there you have it. We have arrived at the other side of the bridge that I spoke of when we first started 57 lessons ago. An Old Testament Hebrew Gospel as foretold by ancient Hebrew prophets has been transported across a vast chasm of time and culture and it has arrived in the world of the New Testament complete with the synagogue, Judaism, and Gentile world dominance. But was the gospel taken away from the Jews and turned over to the Gentiles as Christianity claims? The book of Acts exposes the fallacy of that fundamental Christian doctrine. We have also seen that the Hebrew-Jewish gospel was not modified in order to allow for Gentiles. Rather, Gentiles had always been welcome to join with the Hebrew covenants under certain terms and conditions. It is that the Jews themselves had to learn that their traditions, their... Excuse me. <clears throat> their halakha, which had been developed since Babylon, had to be reformed to recover the meaning and the truth of the Holy Scripture. Yeshua of Nazareth was not only God incarnate and the Messiah, he was also the great reformer. He brought clarity, a new clarity to the gospel and to the Holy Scriptures in general and to the law of Moses in particular. Now once the needed reforms he spawned were underway, then the acceptance of Gentiles into the kingdom of God became a natural progression. Even though the majority of Jews recoiled at such a thought, they fought it tooth and nail. It is ironic that today, and for the past 1900 years, that Gentile Christianity has recoiled at the thought that the entire Bible is a Hebrew document. That our Savior was and is Jewish. That the Jews do not have to abandon their Jewishness to accept Christ. And that our faith is, in reality... A faith with Hebrew roots. It's not a new Gentile creation. Now while Paul gets so much credit for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, Acts reveals his fervent and continued activity with the diaspora Jewish community. We also saw that it was Peter who got the ball rolling at the same time that Paul was still an enemy of Yeshua. Now remember that Peter was one of the original 12 disciples. 
Paul only arrived on the scene well after Yeshua's death and resurrection. So Peter sat at the feet of the Master. Can you imagine? For a couple of years at least to hear the unfiltered truth. It was Peter, not Paul, who was there for the monumental Shavuot, Pentecost feast in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit descended like fire upon the believers. It was Peter who was taught by the Lord that Gentiles were not inherently unclean and that they too were part of that promise that was made to Abraham. Well, let's briefly review our step-by-step journey through the book of Acts and watch how it led us by the hand across this bridge from the Old to the New Testament if only we'll open our eyes and ears and be receptive to its message. Mm. Chapter 1 began by identifying the author of the book of Acts as Luke. He had written an earlier work that we now call the Gospel of Luke. And that dealt with Yeshua's life and ministry. But his sequel, the book of Acts, deals with what those men whom Yeshua raised up as disciples, to whom he entrusted his work on earth, did after his death. Sadly, we learned that during the earliest centuries of Rome-based Gentile Christianity, the book of Acts was intentionally suppressed. And thus, few Christians even knew that it existed. We also learned why it was kept in the closet. The early church fathers, all Gentiles, considered it to be too Jewish. And thus, it was dangerous to their Gentiles only Christian doctrine. Now chapter 2 documents the awesome arrival of the Holy Spirit at the annual Shavuot celebration in Jerusalem. This was something that Yeshua promised was needed but would only happen after he departed into heaven. The power of the Spirit enabled ordinary Holy Land Jews to spontaneously speak foreign languages that they didn't know. Now this unexpected event gave Peter an opportunity to address the astonished crowds of Jews and to tell them about Christ. He tells them that Yeshua is the messianic descendant of David that has been prophesied from ages past. Prior to this day, Luke says that there were only about 120 believers in total. By the end of Shavuot, the believing congregation grew by 3,000. All Jews. Chapter 3 focused on the disciple Peter. The one that Yeshua obviously favored. And on his way to the temple, where the disciples tended to congregate, Peter's confronted by a crippled man who wanted alms. Peter instead healed him by the power of God. The amazed crowd again gave Peter a platform to speak where from it he explained that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified his son Yeshua of Nazareth. And even though men killed him 
and he arose, he arose from the dead and he defeated death. And Peter tells the people that this same Yeshua is the prophet like Moses that Moses said would eventually come after him. Peter had become well known. He was speaking to the people at the temple about resurrection. And we learned that while the Pharisees and the common folk believed in resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees, the aristocrats who ran the temple and the priesthood, they did not. The issue of resurrection is a source of conflict throughout the book of Acts. So Peter and John were arrested by the Jewish temple police taken before the Sanhedrin where they were questioned. The Jewish elders wanted to know how they had managed to heal this cripple. The disciples made it clear that it was through the power of the one the Jewish high court had ordered crucified. Peter and John were ordered to stop speaking in the name of Yeshua. They flatly refused. The numbers of believers, all Jewish, continued to grow. Chapter 5, we met Hanania and Safra believers who owned some property and they sold it. They had apparently promised to give the proceeds to the leadership of the way to be distributed to the poor. But they lied. And they only gave some of it. Hananiah was struck dead by God for this. Shortly afterwards, so was his widow. A reverent fear now spread among the believers. This was no game they were playing. Miracles of healings continued. This worried the high priest. Since the believers were becoming highly esteemed among the common folk. So some disciples were arrested taken before the Sanhedrin, ordered to stop healing in the name of Yeshua. While being interrogated, Peter told the Sanhedrin that God had exalted Yeshua to the right hand, to, to God's right hand in heaven. The Sanhedrin called this blasphemy. Some wanted Peter executed for this heresy. One elder counseled, you know, it's better to let this movement run its course and die out as countless other similar movements have. So Peter was flogged and released. So the number of believers was growing daily. Of course, there were growth pains. Greek-speaking Jews, meaning diaspora Jews, and Hebrew-speaking Jews from the Holy Land had a mistrust, not a downright dislike for one another. The Greek speakers felt that their widows were not being given an equal share of the charity as were the Hebrew speakers' widows. The leadership council of the way, the way is the name they'd given to their sect, decided that seven men from the congregation should administer the charitable funds. And wisely, to diffuse the situation, they chose seven Greek speakers to do the job. One of those chosen was a man named Stephen. Well, by now, priests were joining the ranks of the believers, which only increased the alarm and anger of the high priest. One of the 400 or so synagogues in Jerusalem vehemently opposed Stephen's message. This was mainly because he was a hated Samaritan. And he hired, so they hired some men to lie and to say that they had heard Stephen speak against Moses and against the temple. 
he was arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin on charges of blasphemy. Now chapter 7 tells the story of Stephen's martyrdom. His defense speech to the Sanhedrin reminded them that their forefathers killed the prophets for speaking the truth. And now this present generation had done the same thing to the greatest prophet ever, Yeshua. Stephen's execution set off a series of retributions against other believers and they scattered. But all their scattering accomplished was to further spread the gospel among the Jewish community. Well, the Yeshua movement is spreading rapidly in the Holy Land area. And chapter 8 shows how some deceivers will always try to personally profit from or hijack a successful ministry. Always. We read the story of a sorcerer named Shimon who witnessed the amazing power of the Holy Spirit that was wielded by Peter and others of the disciples and he wanted that power for himself. And as a professional magician, his thought was to purchase it. Peter strongly rebuked him. But then something else with great significance occurred. An angel directed the disciple Philip to intercept an Ethiopian eunuch who was a God-fearer. Philip obeyed. He showed him a passage in Isaiah 53 about the Messiah and the eunuch believed. Philip baptized him and now a Gentile believer in Yeshua joined the fold. The focus begins to shift now from Peter to Paul. And in chapter 9, we find Shaul encounter the risen Messiah. The conversation, we're told, takes place in Hebrew. Now Paul is currently employed by the Sanhedrin to go to Damascus to find and arrest some of these believers who had fled the persecution of the high priest in Jerusalem. The experience is so powerful that Paul drops all resistance and becomes a believer. Yeshua says Gentiles are to be Paul's target audience. Now while at this time the movement consisted nearly 100% of Jews, it was becoming clear that God intended for Gentiles to be offered membership. But how could that be? Gentiles were the enemies of the Jews and therefore thought to be enemies of God. Tradition, halakha, was that Gentiles were born unclean and they remained unclean and therefore Jews ought to have nothing to do with them. Gentiles certainly ought not to be invited to put their trust in the Jewish Messiah to counteract this errant belief the Lord confronts Peter in a vision to help him understand that God does not, never has, view Gentiles as inherently unclean. He uses animals let down in a cloth from heaven as the visual imagery. Now at first, Peter thinks that this is God testing him about kosher eating. But after thinking about it, 
he suddenly realizes and says in verse 14, Oh, now I understand that God does not play favorites, but that whomever fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him, no matter what people He belongs to. For some reason, to this day, despite Peter saying he now understands this has nothing to do with kosher eating, the institutional church doctrine is that God told Peter that this vision was all about food and that he has abolished the kosher food laws. Peter's now prepared to go to yet another Gentile, this time a hated Roman soldier named Cornelius, who God said his heart was hungry for the truth. Peter went to the soldier's house, told him the gospel, and Cornelius and his entire household believed and they were saved. In fact, Peter personally witnessed the Holy Spirit falling upon them. Now the key words of chapter 11 are its first words. The emissaries and the brothers throughout Judah heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But with the addition of more Gentiles, resistance increased among many Jews who demanded that Gentiles who were offered to join in Israel's covenants first had to be circumcised and they had it so that made them Jews. And as far as the Jewish priesthood was concerned, things were really getting out of hand. This growing movement was viewed as a threat to the temple power structure. And so Peter was again arrested, and James, who was John's brother, was executed. But the Lord once again rescued Peter because Peter's ministry was not yet completed. Chapters 13 and 14, well, they switched the scene from the Holy Land first to Antioch, where a couple of disciples were bringing the gospel to the Jews in that city, and then on to the island of Cyprus. Paul then traveled to other nations. And as became his custom, each time he entered a new town, he'd go to the local synagogue to preach. Many Gentiles, God-fearers, had become welcome guests at these synagogues. And as Paul and the other disciples preached the gospel, many Jews and Gentiles came to believe in Messiah Yeshua, but others, the bulk of them, refused. More and more regions of Asia and the Mediterranean were being evangelized with good results from both Jewish and Gentile populations. However, the issue of circumcision for Gentiles had become a real showstopper. Even the disciples were disagreeing about it among themselves, threatening to divide the group. So Paul and some other disciples went to Jerusalem to set the matter before the leadership of the way in hopes they could come to some kind of a definitive resolution. In the end it was agreed that while Gentile believers needed to obey the biblical purity laws if they were going to fellowship with Jewish believers, they did not have to become Jews by means of a circumcision nor did they have to obey Jewish halakha, Jewish law, in order to become full-fledged members of the way. In chapters 16, 17, and 18, 
The focus is on Paul as he travels extensively throughout the places where Jews lived in foreign lands. And during this time, he made a disciple of Timothy, who was Jewish by birth on his mother's side. His father was a Gentile. So now we have believers that are Jews, some that are Gentiles, some are of mixed blood. The Holy Spirit kept prodding Shaul on, further widening the scope of his ministry to include Macedonia. Another incident documented by Luke, whereby the devil tried to hijack, hijack Paul's ministry. It seems that a girl with a snake spirit started following Paul around, screaming and screeching that Paul was a follower of the God Most High. Paul not only rebuked the girl, but ordered the snake spirit out of her, demonstrating God's power over the world of demons. Paul was thanked for this by being thrown in jail because this girl's masters were profiting over her satanic gift of fortune-telling now vanished along with the demon. In Athens, Greece, Paul began debating with their famous philosophers about who is the true God. He spoke the truth of the gospel to them and shockingly, some came to trust even in that spiritually dark place. We also hear of a believer named Apollos who hailed from Alexandria, Egypt, but he seemed to know nothing of the way or even of the Holy Spirit. He had been a follower of John the Baptist and one of his disciples. So we see that Various independent groups of believers had popped up, but not all of them had the needed information, nor did they hold the correct doctrines. Some Jewish exorcists saw what Paul and other disciples were able to do, so they began to try to exorcise demons in the name of Yeshua, but they weren't believers. These exorcists encountered one particular demon that was not very impressed by their mechanical recounting of a name that they thought had mystical power. The exorcists were beaten to a pulp by this demon. Surprisingly, this had a positive effect on believers and non-believers alike as they began to realize that trust, not mindless ritual, Trust was the key to knowing God and having a type of faith that he accepted as real and sincere and was able to save. Now while in Greece, after another journey, Paul discovered a plot by unbelieving Jews that wanted to assassinate him. As always happens, when a movement such as this one begins to grow and gain attention, opposition will grow more vehement. Some men decided to help Paul escape. After further journeys to more far-flung nations, Paul decided it was time for him to go to Jerusalem again. It had been several years since he had been there. And on his way to the Holy City, he stopped at Caesarea Maritima, where a prophet named Agav told him that if he went to Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested. He went anyway. And upon his arrival in Jerusalem, he was greeted by James, the brother of Jesus, still the supreme leader of the way. And James told him that tens of thousands 
of Jews had joined the movement. And all of them remained steadfast observers of the Torah. But news arrived ahead of Paul that he had been teaching against the Torah and against Jewish tradition. A demonstration involving a vow offering was arranged for Paul to prove his loyalty to the Torah and to his Jewishness, and he followed through with it. However, some foreign Jews from Asia were in Jerusalem for the Shavuot festival. They recognized Paul, and they slandered him by saying that he had defiled the temple by bringing Gentiles into it. Well, the crowd went into an angry frenzy. And the local Roman garrison had to literally rescue Paul from the crowd. This led to an opportunity for Paul to tell a story of his turning to Yeshua and why everyone should too. The Romans presented Paul to the Sanhedrin for trial. But the Roman commander could make no sense out of the charges brought against him. Paul told the commander that he was a Roman citizen. So now the commander was obligated to see to it that Paul got a fair trial, but under the Roman legal system. When a conspiracy to assassinate Paul was uncovered, he was spirited away to Caesarea to appear before Governor Felix. A trial was held, with members of the Sanhedrin present making accusations. Felix was unable to make heads or tails of the charges. And he saw that this seemed to be a matter of trivial nuances of Jewish law, but nothing meriting death or jail. However, not wanting to offend the high priest, Governor Felix refused to give a verdict. So Paul remained in jail for two years until a new governor arrived, Festus. Now Festus too could make no sense of the charges. And he asked visiting King Agrippa, who was a Jew, if he could help him understand. Agrippa listened to Paul, decided there was nothing more he could add. Paul now played his trump card. He used his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to the emperor. This was his ticket to get to Rome. Something God told him he must do. Well, the final two chapters of Acts details Paul's journey as a prisoner to Rome. And here we encounter a fascinating story of terror at sea as a giant storm interrupts the trip and nearly kills everyone on board. Paul is shipwrecked, but all survive because God promised through an angel that this would be the outcome. Another ship is taken to the shores of Italy. Finally, Paul arrives in Rome. Still in custody, he had become so trusted that he is assigned only one Roman guard, and he's even allowed to rent an apartment on his own to live in it. During the next two years, he meets with the local Jewish leadership. He tells them the gospel. Many come to belief, although many reject Yeshua. It seems that Paul had finished all that the Lord had intended for him on earth. And Paul either dies in prison in Rome or shortly after being released. Well, if you have listened and studied diligently over these 57 lessons, you're now well equipped to read the New Testament in the light it was always intended as a Hebrew document 
about a Hebrew Savior and his Hebrew disciples as told within a Hebrew cultural backdrop. Next up, we will do the book of Romans.